you know, someone like me who's been homeless, addicted to drugs, who's been incarcerated, person who's been at the bottom of the barrel, we don't scare easy. We don't get through hell and back. And so these bully tactics that some of these politicians are are trying to implement, you know, why they might scare some people, they don't scare us, right? And 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 so we're fighting back, and we're fighting back by being more assertive, more aggressive in engaging with folks. And we believe that in all honesty, that we are the best people to do that because it takes someone who has lost the right to vote, right? Who finally understands how valuable the right to vote is. And now we honor that by actually going out to vote. It takes someone like that, right? To engage in conversations, even with other people who have never lost the right to vote, but have never exercised it. Welcome to People in Common. I'm Jaima. The world's problems right now are big and overwhelming. And we feel farther apart than ever. But we aren't sure what to do. This is a series of conversations with incredible people offering inspiration and practical guidance about how to save our planet and the people on it. We lift up the stories from the front lines to help us meet this moment. We are people in common. So glad you joined us. Desmond Mead is one of Time Magazine's 100 most influential people in the world. He convinced nearly 65% of Florida voters to amend their constitution, restoring voting rights to 1.4 million people with previous felony convictions. Stacey Abrams said it was, quote, the largest expansion of voting rights in a half century, and Desmond made it happen. Desmond Mead, can you please introduce yourself? Well, my name is Desmond Mead. I am the executive director of uh, Florida Rights Restoration Coalition. It's an organization, uh, a grassroots organization in Florida uh, that's comprised of people with previous felony convictions, as well as Uh, people who have loved ones who've been impacted by the criminal justice system. Uh, We're a statewide organization boasting over 17,000 members and in over 20 chapters throughout the state. And uh, we, my organization was um, the lead in the effort, uh, campaign effort to restore voting rights to 1.4 million uh, returning citizens in Florida. You know, it was the largest expansion of voting rights in over 50 years. And we were able to really deal, uh, I would say, a death blow to a 150-year-old Jim Crow policy that's been in place in Florida, uh, which permanently disenfranchised people with felony convictions. We were victorious in that in 2018. And since then, we have been tirelessly working uh, to ensure that every one of the 1.4 million relies the benefit of the passage of Amendment 4. In the process of doing that, um, we are engaging in different tactics and campaigns in such a way as to create an excitement around voting, around participating in democracy, uh, and getting people who have historically been marginalized, historically been silenced, and helping them to realize the power that they possess through the franchise. 
Wow. I mean, and you have, to be clear, you personally and your entire team of staff and volunteers and everybody is out there literally telling people that they have been granted their right to vote and making sure that they can actually do that. Can you talk about the Free the Vote bus tour, which I know is going on right now? <laughs> yeah, you know, that Free the Vote bus tour, I'm telling you, it's uh, it's something special. And one of the things that, you know, I like about it is that it symbolizes our response to the avalanche of voter suppression legislation that you're uh, seeing being introduced and implemented throughout this country, right? Uh, even here in the state of Florida. And, and, and so what that bus symbolizes is that, that we respond to suppression with aggression. If you're going to try to suppress the right to vote, we're going to be more aggressive in talking to people about why is it important to participate in our democracy. We're going to be more aggressive in making sure that people are eligible to, to vote. And then those who are eligible to register to vote, we're going to be more aggressive in getting them registered to vote. Because we believe, like, you know, these laws are designed to pick people, voters off on the fringes, right? Uh, and, and so if they're going to implement a law that's going to uh, stop 10 people from voting, that means that we're going to get 100 people, 100 new voters to engage in our democracy. If they want to implement a policy that would uh, uh, make it more difficult for 200 people to vote, then we're going out there and getting 2,000 people to participate in our democracy. And so that free to vote bus tour uh, symbolizes that attitude, right? That we would not be coward. One of the things about returning citizens, and, and I'll get into my story a little bit later, but you know, someone like me who's been homeless, addicted to drugs, who's been incarcerated, person who's been at the bottom of the barrel, we don't scare easy. We don't get through hell and back. And so these early tactics that some of these politicians are are trying to implement, you know, why they might scare some people, they don't scare us, right? And 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 so we're fighting back and we're fighting back by being more assertive, more aggressive in engaging with folks. And we believe that in all honesty that we are the best people to do that because it takes someone who has lost the right to vote, right? Who finally understands how valuable the right to vote is and how we honor that by actually going out to vote. It takes someone like that, right, to engage in conversations, even with other people who have never lost the right to vote, but have never exercised it, right? And so we're going to be that emissary, uh, and we're going to go out there, and, and we're going to talk to you know, everybody we can talk to. Uh, our primary focus are returning citizens, but they have loved ones and family members who uh, have never lost the right to vote and may have never cast a ballot in their life, and we're making sure that they understand the importance of them doing so. Absolutely. A universally shared opinion <laughs> is that we don't know how to talk to each other anymore. I mean, it's, it's pretty <laughs> obvious, right? And I think you are someone who is able to talk to anyone, and you have bets with your staff. If you have five minutes with someone, they will walk away as a voter for the Voting Rights Amendment, Amendment 4 in Florida. So tell me, how do we talk to each other? Wow, you t you're talking like as if you read my book, <laughs> Let My People Vote. Of course, everybody check this out. Yeah, if you haven't read it yet, Let My People Vote. Yeah, you know, because in that book, I talk about that and how, you know, even thinking now, 
you know, when you said it's so hard for us to talk to each other, I think one of the reasons why is that what we see before we see a human being is a label. We see a white person. We see a possible conservative. We see someone that may be an immigrant or whatever. We see all these different labels before we see the humanity in people, right? It's easy for us to talk to each other. Let me tell you, we always demonstrate that in various times, like particularly after hurricanes, right? After hurricanes, it's not, you know, you see how people come together, right? To help each other out, to help the neighbor out, to help a community out, right? And people are talking to each other. They're working together, you know, they're, they're helping each other out and they're not overly concerned about what your politics is or your nationality or, you know, the color of your skin or whatever. And so we've seen that, you know, and so I know that we can do it. It's just that we allow ourselves to be drugged back into this uh, realm of the puppet master, right? That, mm-hmm. that tells us that we need to hate people because they're such and such, you know, and, and we have all these labels, you know, on either side, you know, to be honest with you, I don't even know what those labels mean. You know, when I look at you and I look at someone, the first thing I see is a human being. And I think that that's what we address, you know, and, and when we see a human being, we can connect along the lines of humanity and we can have that conversation. And that's what, that's what I did during the amendment Four campaign. I purposely went and sought out people who the establishment said would not agree with me. People who, who the establishment said would be against the restoration of voting rights to people with felony convictions. I purposely sought those individuals out. And let me tell you, I've had beautiful conversations, right? And, and, and I, I've met people who are, are, are really cool. They just have a difference of opinion on some things with me. But, you know, for the most part, we, we agree on the same thing. We have the same fears. We have the same desires, you know? Um, and, and so I think that, you know, when I did that, you know, I didn't realize what I was getting into, but it evolved into something that was like, wow, wait a minute. We don't have to be as divided as, as we are as a country. Because I even think, of, and when I was talking to those folks, you know what I thought about was football. You know, when you see those images of the houses that are split in half with Alabama colors on one side, Auburn or Michigan and Ohio State, you know, when you, when you see those things, right, and, and how you could have a family like in Florida, it's probably Florida uh, versus Florida State, and, 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 and they could be on opposite ends of the spectrum, but they still remain a family. They still love each other. And it had me thinking, I'm like, wait a minute, what family don't have disagreements? What family don't have arguments and fights or whatever, you know? But there is something there in the family that allows them to remain a family. And so I think that that is the same thing uh, uh, in our country, in our society, in our communities, that we we can have differences of opinion and still operate as a community, still operate as a country and engaging in amendment four really solidified that belief for me. Hmm. What is it that binds us as an American family? 
Well, let me tell you, there's a lot of things, right? And most of the things that bind us as an American family are the things that bind us as a human race, right? The difference or the little section that may be different from everything else is our allegiance and our love of our country, right? And our, our desire to be a part of a system, right, in which we really have a say in how we're being governed. That's all part of that process anyhow, you know, because, you know, one thing I learned in law school is that you know, theoretically a human being have all their rights, right? And they have the supreme power, right? But we give up those rights, some of those rights, in order to live amongst each other, right? And, and, and we, and we want to live amongst each other because together we can prosper. Together it provides security and safety. And so we relinquish some of those rights to a collective body that we choose and we uh, direct. And so I think that that basic concept is something that connects us all as Americans that, wait a minute, we are in a country where we don't have a dictator, that we're not under the, the foot of, of some madman. And because <laughs> we sort of came real close to that. But, the, you know, we're, we're, in a, we're in a country where there is some form of democracy there and there's some form of uh, or presence of people actually deciding you know, what happens in their community, that people actually have a role and a word uh, 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 in determining our future and the future for our kids and our grandkids, right? And what the most powerful way that happens is also the most telling a symbol of citizenship, and that's the vote. Nothing speaks more to citizenship than being able to vote, Right? And it is our vote that determines what happens in the future for our kids and our grandkids. It's our vote that determines how our society is governed and who governs it. And so voting is, I think, something that can that that yeah, it brings us together because we're we're talking about participating in a shared dream of democracy, you know, and 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 their various opinions here and there, or, or approaches or perspectives, but at its core, at its core are three famous words. And you know what they are? We the people. Yes. And I love how you talk about how fundamental and sacred the right to vote is. That at its core, voting says, I am. Can you talk about that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, this past August, uh, 2020, I voted for the first time in over 30 years. And let me tell you, and when I voted in November in the general election, that was my first ever presidential election I voted in. And I'm over 50 years old, right? And that was the first time I ever got to vote for the president of the United States. But that moment, that special moment, occurred uh, during the primary. And I remember when I was walking up to um, my precinct and I started thinking about all the blood that was shed for our freedoms and for this democracy. And I thought about 
my ancestors who were hung on trees, who was burned, who was beaten, bitten by dogs and having all kinds of atrocities done to them to keep them from registering to vote and to keep them from voting and knowing that my ancestors in, in the face of all of this adversity still went to register the vote, knowing that by doing so they might be murdered, right? They still pressed through. Not only did they do it to register the vote, but they did it again just to go and vote. So they had to do it twice. And then I thought about the, the so many volunteers who had um, volunteered for Amendment 4, you know, and they sacrificed a lot of blood, sweat, and tears uh, to, number one, get Amendment 4 in the ballot. Number two, get it passed, right? And all of those people making all of those sacrifices, and, you know, I just felt like I was walking on hollowed ground. That, that the ground that that precinct was on was sacred because of the blood that was shed on the soil for me, for people like me to be able to vote. And so when I walked in there and I got my ballot, you know, when I, when I went to the uh, voting booth, you know, I started, I was realizing that, man, I'm getting ready to engage in a sacred act. Right, because I'm I'm walking on hollow ground. There's a level of sacredness that's attached to voting because of the sacrifices that was made and the lives that were lost for that. And so I know that me voting, I was actually committing a sacred act. And then while I was doing it, it dawned on me that what I was engaged in transcended partisan politics, and it transcended even racial biases and all of that. And it, it, it really, that act that I was engaged in actually took me to that place that said, I am. It spoke to my existence as a human being and the significance of the role that I play within my community or within my society, right? That when I was voting, I wasn't voting as a Democrat. I wasn't voting as a Republican. Man, I was voting as a human being. Right. And it spoke to the humanity piece of it. And so I was, it was a very special moment for me to be able to engage in that. Part of me was angry because uh, the puppet masters or these politicians have taken something as sacred as voting, right? And has politicized it to a point where, you know, it's like you have politicians now that are deciding who get to vote and who don't get to vote. And when they get to vote and and how they can vote and and making it even difficult for people to vote. And at the end of the day, they're the last persons that should be engaged in that. When they're trying to silence our voice, right, I think what they're doing also at the same time is diminishing our humanity. And they're saying that you're not worthy of having your voice heard. You're not worthy of having a, 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 a deciding voice in the direction of this country. You're not worthy of that. You need to let other people do it for you because you're not good enough. Like what we're seeing happening is more than just a racial thing. I think it's a direct assault against democracy. I think it impacts everybody, right? Whether you're black, white, conservative, 
progressive. It impacts everybody because it impacts our democracy. Some of the most powerful and just blatant examples of what you're describing, I've watched some in some of the clemency hearings, the clemency board in, in Florida, especially, I mean, Rick Scott looking people in the eye and saying essentially, yes, I commend you on all of, yes, you are absolutely qualified to vote. I commend you on turning your life around. And I'm going to go ahead and deny your bid to become a voter for no reason. And we can point to so many examples. But what does that do? What does that do to people and our democracy as a whole? I'll tell you what it tells me, that no politician, whether they're Democrat, Republican or whatever, should have that much power to decide, especially you know, when that decision-making process is arbitrary. That was painful to watch. It became infuriating when, you know, maybe later on during the hearing, you have someone that says, hey, if I could vote, I could vote for you. <laughs> they said, granted, you get your rights back, right? And, and we've seen that. And I think that one particular instance you're talking about, that woman actually worked for the state. She was a state employee. And to tell someone who made a mistake, that's, it's crazy. Let me tell you, it's crazy. It flies in the face of everything, right? We know that a politician of all people sitting in judgment of someone else and determining whether or not they're good enough to vote, that is something that was just not right with that. And so looking at those hearings was both painful and infuriating all at the same time, uh, but it, it served as a catalyst uh, for us to know that, listen, we have to get the people together and let the people take the power, that kind of power, out of the hands of politicians. And that's what Amendment 4 did. And no matter what piece of legislation comes after that, uh, the one thing that we can say is that we have secured within the Constitution of the state of Florida a pathway for people to be able to vote and participate in our democracy without having to grovel at the knees of any politician. That's a pretty powerful image. And if you watch those hearings, that's what's happening. I mean, it is physically true. For those reasons you just described, you have been very honest about not wanting politicians to, say, endorse Amendment 4, for sure. And you have said you have said no. You have stood up and said no to some of just the ways that politics works, even though you are in the middle of politics. Tell me, how does that feel? <laughs> that is a tightrope there. You know, I have to say that, you know, I believe that voting is not as political as we make it. Right. Even though there is all of the tendencies would lead one to say, OK, no, that's a political act. I think that is something deeper than the than politics. It's always a tightrope because we, you know, we talk about when we dealing with voting rights. You know, folks always want to put your efforts as a progressive effort or as a conservative effort. I don't want to label you Democrat or Republican. I think that it, it, it's it's something deeper than that. And I think that when we politicize voting, we actually diminish ourselves. One of the experiences is that, you know, like after Amendment 4 passed and you had folks that was very anxious to register returning citizens, right? 
And you could tell that the reason that they wanted to do so was because they wanted to gain more voters for for their party. The problem with that is, is that when you approach when you're approaching folks that way, or when you're approaching an activity that way, you're basically saying that I am nothing but a, a pawn in your political gamesmanship, which means that you're less concerned about who I am as a, a human being and more concerned about who I am as a voter, right? And the thing is, is that my humanity should trump, you know what I'm saying, me being a voter. And I think that that could be one of the reasons why we do have a level of, of apathy uh, throughout the country and in our communities because people don't see themselves as part of the process, but more of as a pawn in the game. And not everybody wants to play that game. That I have to be against you or, or someone else. And if I don't agree with you, then I'm not a good person. And, you know, no, it's since when has it been that way? I, I have a, a beautiful wife that I love so much. And I know that she loves me dearly, but we don't agree on everything. We definitely don't agree on everything. I don't think that just because somebody does not have the same political view that we have, that we should demonize them, that we should ostracize them. I don't think we should engage in that. But what happens is that this voting thing has become a tool to do so, right? So how many Republicans can we register? How many Dems can we register? And you want to get more Dems to come out or more Republicans to come out when reality is what we want is just more people coming out because the more people participate in our democracy, the more vibrant it is. And if my engagement around uh, 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 restoring voting rights is based solely upon how I think someone may vote, if I'm only fighting for you because I think that you're going to pick my side on something, then I'm not really fighting for you. I'm fighting for me. I'm not fighting for you. And I'm definitely not fighting for us because when I'm fighting for us, then that means regardless of whether or not you may agree with me, regardless of whether or not you may vote the way that I, I would love for you to vote, I need you to participate in the process. And if we truly believe in a democracy, then you know what? Even though we may believe something, if everybody comes to vote, and at the end of the day, more people vote for the other thing, then you should be okay with that and keep it moving. But it's when the game is rigged. It's when tactics are in place that minimizes the, the, the people that would vote for something or minimize the ability of people being able to vote for something. That's when we, we have to fight. But it's still not left versus right. It's not fighting for the left to have an advantage. It's not fighting for the left to be fair. It's fighting for the entire system to, to operate the way it should be. And that means that not only do I want to rally the people that's on the left, I need to rally the people on the right as well. I think there's a lot of people hungering for exactly what you're talking about, especially people who do not already see themselves. They're not in the game. They don't want to, you know, they're not pawn. They are nothing. They're they're completely outside of the system. And I think especially important in this 
is you are fighting for our democracy. And I think we both recognize that the system is flawed. Our democracy is in peril and it hasn't been perfect. I mean, it, it, far from it. Tell us, how have you gone out and actionalized that? Having conversations. One of the stories is during the campaign for Amendment 4, uh, we went into this conservative county, and there was a, a gentleman who had a home at the corner right across the street from a precinct. And he had Republican signs littering his lawn. He didn't have a sidewalk, but he had a grassy area on the outside of his fence uh, right next to the street. And all you see was campaign signs for uh, conservative uh, candidates. I remember telling my son, I'm going to get an Amendment 4 sign on his property. <laughs> he was like, there's no way that's happening. And as we were walking up, this guy, he came out of his house and he made this pastor leave. Right? He was like, you need to get away from my property. And the reason why he made the pastor leave, because the pastor had a football jersey on and it had the number seven on it. For Colin Kaepernick, Right. Mind you, it wasn't the San Francisco 49er jersey. It was just a regular jersey. Uh, but be, that seven was associated with Colin Kaepernick. And so this guy made kick the pastor off his property. Be, as we were walking up, I'm, we're watching this. And my son was like, Are you definitely not getting an amendment for. Uh, yeah, I was like, just watch. And I, I approached this guy and I was like, uh, why did you kick that guy off? He said, oh, he's one of those Kaepernick people, anti-police and unpatriotic and all of that. And then he started talking about socialists and how the uh, a progressive candidate was nothing but a socialist and, and started just talking about what socialist means and all that. And then he was actually railing about, listen now, about government dominating people's lives and having no accountability and doing anything they want to civilians and getting away with it. And after he railed for a while, I said, you know what? I said, guess what, bro? Like what? I said, that's what Colin was kneeling for. He was kneeling for you, buddy. <laughs> and when I told him that his eyes glazed over it, he didn't know how to handle that. Right, that this guy that he was taught because of labels to despise without even really knowing what Colin Kaepernick was doing, when he was finally told that what he was despising this guy for was exactly what he want people to guard against, he couldn't handle it. And then he, he was like blown away. And we, we continued talking and as it turned out, his mom and his sister were returning citizens. And so by the end of our conversation, not only did I get uh, an Amendment 4 sign in his property, I got about five signs put in prime locations on his property. Corner lot, five signs. And, and when I walked away, the pastor was like, uh, you think you're doing something? What, he's going to pull them up as soon as you leave. And I told him, I said, okay, pastor, come by here tomorrow and let me know if they're still there. And he did. And he called it that they're still there. <laughs> and so the thing that, that that exchange told me that, first of all, 
we are so taught. I mean, even during the campaign, it was like, no, you have to mobilize your base and you have to neutralize the uh, opposition and try to move the middle, right? And I was like, no, no, we're not only going to mobilize our base, right? Because in reality, our base is all over. Because we have people who have lost the right to vote that that are are, are conservative leaning as well as progressive leaning. And some that don't care either way. And so, no, we're going into these communities. That's what I did. Having these conversations taught me that we were conditioned to believe that it's a waste of time to speak to certain type of people. As a matter of fact, let me go a little deeper. We are conditioned to believe that it's a waste of time to even talk to our own people, right? How many campaigns you've seen that have walk lists and have you knock on one door and walk past 20 other doors, right? And then get mad when people don't show up, right? We've been conditioned to not even talk to our own people, but more so to not talk to people who we have labeled as our enemies. I think we've actually managed to create a society in which our neighbors are our enemies or our even family members are our enemies because whether or not they believe in abortion or whether or not they believe in, in, in trickle-down economics or whether or not they believe in, 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 in policing practices, all of a sudden now they are our enemy. And what I've learned uh, in recovery and in, in, in Alcoholic Anonymous tells you, you, you don't hate the person, you hate the disease, right? And so what I've learned is that, no, I'm not hating that person and thinking that that person is my enemy. I might hate a system that has a person thinking that way because that same system had this man hating a number, hating a number because what it represented, right? And not even realizing that what, it really represented was the things that he cared about. But he would never know that. He would never know that because he is not in proximity to someone that could talk to him about that because no one wants to talk to him about that that's on the other side. And so there's this wall there, and his hatred and his anger and his resentment continues to grow every single day. And our frustrations and our anger and our resentment continues to grow every day and eventually it blows up. And, and it shows its face like in the insurrection at the Capitol. It shows its face in, 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 in some of the protests. It shows its face in a very violent way. And people are yelling at each other and screaming at each other, but no one's talking to each other. And these labels prevent us from doing that. And so with the campaign, we got rid of labels. We, we didn't see labels. Every person was a potential supporter of Amendment 4. And that's why we had over six, about 65% of people voted for Amendment 4. We had at least a million people who voted for Amendment 4 were Republicans, right? At least a million. And what I like to tell people is that we got people to vote for Amendment 4, not based on hate or fear, but rather on love, forgiveness, and redemption. And we showed the world that love can, in fact, win the day.
that we don't have to tear each other down. We don't have to be fearful of each other in order to move major policies. And we can do that. We've done amazing things as a country when we've been able to transcend the partisan politics. We come together and, and we bounce back from tragedy. When we throw the politics out the door, when we throw the biases out the door and we just come together as human beings. We've done amazing things. Even during the, uh, this pandemic, we've seen the beautiful times have been when people have come together along the lines of humanity. The ugly times have been politicians have been involved and it's been political. Last time we were together, you talked about winning with love. Tell us how you did that. I was so tempted to say, you know, folks ought to grab a copy and let my people vote. <laughs> right? It's in there. You know, I would I would love to say that it was this brilliant idea that I thought about, you know, from the very beginning, but I know that that's not true. I know that it was something that I basically stumbled on um, because just a frustration, you know, uh, in 2011, we had a new administration uh, take uh, office, um, uh, Rick Scott administration. And one of the very first things he and his cabinet did was to undo the previous policies around clemency and made it even more difficult. Just to give an example, when Jeb Bush was the governor for years, over 75,000 people were able to have their civil rights restored, which include voting rights. Right after him, uh, we had Governor Charlie Chris. And in his four years, over 155,000 people were able to have their civil rights restored. After him was Rick Scott. And Rick Scott was in office eight years. And in his eight years, less than 5,000 people had their rights restored. And so this governor, he, he comes in and he changes the policy. He make everybody wait out of five or seven years after they've completed their sentence before they're allowed to just apply. Then after they apply, there's still like a waiting process. You know, I was at a clemency hearing in March of, of 2021, this year, and there was an attorney there that testified that he has a client who applied to have his rights restored in 2008. In 2008, this guy applied, and here we are in 2021, and he's still waiting to have a hearing. And so when Rick Scott created that policy, you know, I, I was like, I was so, like, disappointed. And so many people were, you know, uh, disappointed because the coalition spent a lot of years, used a lot of resources to at least get a policy where people with less serious offenses were able to get their rights restored automatic. And to see all of the work that was done over the years just be undone by a signature on a piece of paper mm. was disheartening. Mm. And uh, one of the things I thought about, because at the time, the sentencing project had reported that 1.54 million people in Florida couldn't vote because of a felony conviction. I thought, wow, could we rally all these people and get them to go to Tallahassee and, and, and tell the governor to give us our rights back? And I thought about that image, right? About a million people 
on the governor's lawn and some of us walk up and knock on his door. Hey, governor, give us our rights back. And I could see the governor peeking out of the window and seeing a million returning citizens on his lawn and closing the window back and going about his business because none of those people could vote. And then I thought about, wow, this governor just won his race by 63,000 votes. What if I can get a returning citizen to get one family member, two family members, to pledge to vote on their behalf? Would the governor listen then? And that's what I, I started out doing. We start, I started with these pledge cards that I made off of, what's the PowerPoint or whatever? I, I made a rinky-dink pledge card with basically having returning citizens get fa five family members to pledge to vote on their behalf. And, you know, what I believed was that blood was thicker than water. And I think that if you get a family member or someone who loves you, a particular family member, though, too, go into a voting booth with you on their mind, right? And that I think that more times than not, that voting for you could withstand the good-sounding politicians or the negative ad bites or, you know, the, the commercials and everything. And I just, and so I was saying, let's organize not along party lines, not along racial lines, Let's organize along bloodlines. That's how it started, right? And I, I didn't, you know, really recognize how powerful that could be and how powerful love is. Um, I was just looking at bloodlines, right? And um, but as we progressed, then we decided to launch the ballot initiative. Uh, about a year or two later. That's when it started really sitting in that, yes, let's talk to people about people who they love. You know, we could talk about, you know, how uh, felon disenfranchisement, you know, have its racist roots. And, and we could talk about how it was, you know, meant to uh, uh, disenfranchise newly freed slaves. We could talk about that. But is everybody going to be moved by that? You know, maybe not, you know. But what is it that we can talk about that we know that everybody can be moved by? As someone who they love. So that was the focal point. So you knocked on people's door and you would say, Do you know anyone who you love who's ever made a mistake? And how could you not vote for amendment? I know, how right? could your heart not be moved? I only had two people. <laughs> Traveled the entire state. Let me tell you, I've driven over 50,000 miles a year in my car. I've searched high and I've searched low. And I could only remember two encounters in which I walked away knowing that that person was not going to vote for Amendment 4. And, and the one of them uh, was this guy in, at, at a tailgate party, the arena where the, uh, the football stadium where the Jacksonville Jaguars play in uh, Jacksonville. I remember when I was walking up to him, you know, he made sure to let me know he was voting for Donald Trump. And I was like, you know, that's cool, you know. And I asked him that famous question. And he said, yes, my son. And when he said that, I was like, I got him. I got him. And I said, don't you want your son to be able to vote after he served his time? 
And this guy said, hell no. My son is too damn stupid. I don't ever want him voting. And so <laughs> when, when he said that, I was like, wow. You know, if this guy don't even want his own son to vote, that, there's no need to even continue the conversation. So I thanked him for his time and I moved on. You know, but that was one of two times that I, when I walked away, I knew, okay, that person is not going to vote for me anymore. But I've been in rooms with conservative folks that has given, have given standing ovations after I've finished speaking and have talked about how they're going to vote for Amendment 4 and talked about stories of their loved ones, whether it was a, a mother or a daughter or a granddaughter who had a meth problem, right, or who had an opioid problem or who had a, a, a DUI manslaughter or whatever, you know, or their kids who may have made a mistake at a young age, and they have those stories, and those stories are real. You know, I always have to tell people that when, when I was arrested, the police didn't ask me if I was Democrat or Republican. And when I appeared before a judge to get sentenced, he didn't ask me that either. And I know that getting caught up in the criminal justice system, it's, all, it's not only for Democrats. You know, he said, tell them, because, you know, you have some folks say, yeah, you know, the Republicans, they don't want uh, uh, people with felony convictions to get the right to vote back because they know that they all vote Democrat and, you know, uh, they'll be out of a job. And I used to say, don't say that because what you're basically saying is only Democrats get in trouble. Only Democrats break the law. And I know that that's not true. That's not true. You know, people break the law. People get in trouble. And they come from all walks of life and all political persuasions. And who among us doesn't know someone we adore and love more than life itself who's made a mistake? You have constitutionalized grace. <laughs> <laughs> yep. What would you have people do? What is the action that we can do today? What is the most important thing? That's a tough question. Let me start it with the easy one. You know, folks can... Go to our website at www.floridarrc.com or they can go to our uh, Facebook page. There are so many ways that folks can be helpful. We have a fines and fees campaign where we're raising money. $27 million so far, correct? Yep. Is that well, No, over that. We're using it to pay people's fines and fees because you know nobody should be forced to choose between either putting food on their table or voting right, or paying their rent or mortgage or voting. And and so we have a fines and fees fund that we're constantly raising money for uh, to help people uh, remove those financial barriers. We have our big red free to vote bus tour. We got this bus going around the state of Florida so folks can donate to help us continue to keep the bus on the road. I just had this image of free the vote bus tour arriving, knocking on people's doors and telling them basically they've won the civil rights lottery. But we have been doing that. Let me tell you, every stop we've made, we have encountered people who, I mean, it's been like a crying fest. We had one gentleman who uh, for over 30 years, he's been wanting to, uh, to vote. And we were able to give him a certificate that would show that he had the right to vote 10 years ago. We, 10 years ago, we've had people who fines and fees that we've paid that have now been able to, they've been able to get their driver's license back and 
start their own business as well as vote. Um, we've had uh, uh, folks who were so poor they couldn't even afford to pay a $250 fine. And when they discovered that we paid it for them, just broke down in tears, talked about what they what it meant to them, and they were able to register the vote. Every single stop, we have been touched. We've been so touched by the stories of people who have had their hopes restored, their dignity restored, because now they can be a part of our democracy. And so that's happening already. That bus is pulling up and we're knocking on doors. Oh, yes, we are. And as a matter of fact, we're, uh, this weekend, we're going to be in Dade County for three days uh, looking to help at least 16,000 people. We Listen, we are going big. If they go big or stay at home, we're trying to help as many people as possible. Just get plugged right back into to the system. But let me tell you, in 2019, I was Time Magazine named me one of the 100 most influential people in the world, right? And I remember when I you know, was notified of that, I asked my wife, I was with my wife, and I was like, Did they talk, are they talking about the country? And my, my wife was like, no, baby, they, they're talking about the world. And my only response to that was that there was more than 100 countries in the world. Yet there I was, one of the hundred most influential people in the world. In, in the world, and when we went to the gala, I remember telling the uh, folks from Time Magazine that I was disappointed in them because they put the Rock on their cover. Right, I was like, "You should have put me on the cover." Right, I'm going to tell you why. It wasn't because of ego. It wasn't because of uh, any kind of conceit or whatever. But I felt that. My story, August 2005, standing in front of railroad tracks, waiting on the train to come so I can jump in front of it. I was homeless. I was addicted to drugs. I was unemployed. I was recently released from prison, and the only thing I owned were the clothes that was on my back. And I didn't see any light at the end of the tunnel, and I waited on the train to come so I could end my life. And the train never came, and I crossed those tracks, and I checked myself into drug treatment, and after completing it, I moved into a homeless shelter. And while living in the homeless shelter, I decided to go to school, and I enrolled in one of the local community colleges, and I graduated uh, at the top of my class, and I pursued another degree, and I graduated with highest honors, and eventually I uh, applied to law school and got accepted, and, and four years later, I graduated with a law degree became the president of the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, dedicated my life to giving back to the community and fighting for our democracy. And eventually I led the effort to restore voting rights to 1.4 million people in Florida. I told them I should have been on that cover because people need to know that you don't have to be a movie star. You don't have to be an athlete. You don't have to be a a politician, you don't have to be a billionaire to have an impact in your community, in your state, in this world. You don't. Because if that guy, Desmond, who was the, the crackhead, who was a homeless guy, if he was able to turn his life around and do the things that he did and led 
a successful Amendment 4 campaign in a state that is most difficult to win a citizen's initiative in a, in a political climate that said that that should have never passed. If that guy that was homeless and an addict can evolve and do those things and influence the world, then what that says is that anyone that hears my voice, anyone that sees my image could know that they too, they themselves, have what it takes to be Time 100. They have what it takes to make a difference in their community, in their state. They have what it takes to make a difference in this country, in the world. That key ingredient is love. It's love. In spite of the color of their skin, their sexual identity, their immigration status, their socioeconomic stature, whatever, in spite of their titles or degrees, all of that is irrelevant. Because when you cut through all of that, what we just see is another human being. That God has created. I see my brother, my sister, and I love them. And I was willing to fight for them. And I was willing to sacrifice myself for them because I love them. That was the kind of love that Jesus had. And if we get that type of love, we can do amazing things, and this world will be a much better place. That's my advice. Desmond, we love you back. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure just hanging out with you for a while. So you heard it from Desmond. If he can do it, so can you. To learn more, check out the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition website, floridarrc.com. We are people in common. So glad you joined us. Thank you for listening.